How y'all doing tonight? Great. Cool. Um, tonight, we continue on in our series on Revive Us. The concept of this series throughout the summer has been, what if we as a people truly desired to position ourselves to receive the life-giving touch of God in our lives? What does that look like? What does that mean? Now, up till now, we have focused largely on the personal space, the intimacy, the one-on-one intimacy with Jesus, and only kind of briefly touched on the realities of us living in community. In other words, we've focused a lot of bit on the, the revive, less so much on the us. But if we're not careful, we can so easily begin to believe that our journey with Jesus is an exclusively individual and personal one. More like revive me than revive us. See, in our world, and especially in our culture, that probably doesn't feel like really a problem at all. I mean, our culture prizes the individual. We have this orientation around the self. So we hear words like self-discovery, self-actualization, self-help. Like those concepts work around the idea of focusing on the self. But the question is, what has that done to our culture and to us as people? Has it made us healthier? Has it made us better? Has it led to deeper levels of connection within ourselves and with the people around us? Um, and according to Harvard University, they did a study just a couple years ago. And in a national study of American adults, they found that 36% of respondents reported serious loneliness. Serious loneliness. Saying that they feel lonely frequently or almost all the time in the survey. Now, the numbers jump up when it's young adults. From age 18 to 25, it's 61%. And the only demographic that was, uh, the demographic that was right under that was mothers with young children at 51%. Now, here's what the sociologists from Harvard University explained. They said, in this age of hyper-individualism, the degree to which Americans have prioritized self-concerns and self-advancement and demoted concern for others in many communities has left many Americans stranded and feeling disconnected. That's powerful, right? And it's Harvard, so you know it's good stuff, right? <laughs> now, neither that study nor am I saying that all loneliness that you ever experience is because you're just too focused on yourself. That, that's not the point whatsoever. But instead, what I, what I am suggesting, what this study is suggesting is the individualistic cultural waters in which we swim in are doing nothing to help the cause of loneliness. In fact, they only become detrimental to us. The reality is that the culture we live in is individualized, fractured, and it's hurting question is, does God have a better answer? Does he have a better answer to the pain that we can feel inside of us and inside of our culture? The loneliness, the isolation. Now, over the last two weeks, we have meditated on two prayers. In the Old Testament, we focused in on the Shema. Um, it starts at, with, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Last week, we talked about, uh, I'm sorry, and then we also talked a couple weeks about the Lord's Prayer in the New Testament that starts off with, Our Father, hallowed be your name. Now, in both of these prayers, they were meant to get, be guides to God's people and to renew their hearts and their minds towards Him. But notice that these aren't individually focused prayers. Hear, O oh, person? No. Hero Israel, the entire nation was supposed to pray this together. The Lord, our God, the Lord is one. Jesus prayed, 
said, pray like this, our father, not just my father, but our father. Now tonight we're gonna focus in on a different prayer, but this isn't a prayer that God gave us to pray. This is a prayer that Jesus prayed for all of his followers up till today. So we're gonna find it in John chapter 17. If you wanna go ahead and open up your Bibles there, we're in John 17. And you see in the scriptures, what, in this passage, what we're gonna discover is Jesus's prayer for us. Isn't that crazy to think about? Jesus prayed with us in mind. It happened on the night of his arrest. And so far up, in this, up to the story, up to this point, he has taken the opportunity to chat with his followers and to preach to them a message filled with reassurance because he knows what's about to happen to him. So he wants to give them this word so that they would be encouraged and hold strong. This is where like, this is like a greatest hits album of, of sermons. Like, this is where he says to abide in him and you'll bear much fruit, to trust that the coming Holy Spirit is going to come, that they are going to experience hardship, but trust that he has overcome the world already. Like this is kind of that sermon. Like those are all kind of in this one. So it's a big deal. And as he closes his sermon, he begins to pray for, his, for himself. Then he prays for his disciples. And then he prays for all who would come after. So before we get into the passage and we really unpack it, what I would love to do is simply read this prayer over you. So would you just close your eyes for a moment as I read this prayer from Jesus and allow it to just wash over you. I do not ask only for these, for these only, the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may be they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you have sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Go ahead and open up your eyes. We are meant to be a community united at the feet of Jesus. We are meant to be a community united at the feet of Jesus. Look how Jesus starts this portion of the prayer. I do not ask for these only. This is verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So first off, Jesus makes it clear about who he's praying for. He's not just praying for his disciples, the, these only. He, did, he wasn't just praying for his inner crew, but for those who would come after. And this would include a few months later, Peter would preach the gospel in boldness on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people would respond to the gospel and be baptized. This prayer is for them. And then in the first hundred years of the early church, 
church plants would be planted all throughout Asia, India, Africa, and Europe. This prayer was for them. Then over the last 2,000 years across the globe, the church has expanded. The church has grown. The church has moved. The church has been the living demonstration of the kingdom. And it has also affected spaces of brokenness because it's filled with imperfect people. And this prayer is for them too. And today, Christians in China, Africa, and the Middle East, where today Jesus is calling to himself a chosen people in the midst of difficulty and heavy persecution, this prayer is for them too. And the church that is gathered in this building right now, this prayer is for us too. See, the covering of Jesus' prayer spanned from that moment over 2,000 years ago, all the way to this present moment that we sit in right now. Jesus is praying for us. But notice Jesus isn't just praying for individual Christians on their kind of solo, isolated, lone wolf journeys. He is talking about a collection of individuals. But you see, we are so quick in our world to individualize scriptures that we just kind of insert our names into everything. But then we see passages like this, 1 Peter 2, verse Peter 2, verse 9. Here's how Peter tells it to the church. 2, verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, when we read that word you in our modern English translation, it can be kind of tricky and kind of throw us off because when we, when we read the word you, we take it like, oh, me. But this would be a really weird thing to say if it meant you as in you as a person. But you, you single individual are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. That would be weird, right? In the King James translation, there's another word that's used. It's the word thou. We don't use that word ever, um, which kind of makes sense because that's not the way we would ever talk. But the beauty of the word thou is that it is a second person plural word. Okay, now here's what that means. It's about a group of yous, not just about a single you. The best, uh, the best modern American translation that we have comes from the great state of Texas. It's the word y'all. Seriously, read the word y'all in the epistles and it makes it so much easier and clearer. Y'all, you all, or all of yous, you know? So when you get that, but y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that y'all may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Kind of fun. Seriously, do that. It's a lot of fun. But when you see that, you actually see what it's meant to say. Peter wasn't writing to an individual. He's writing to y'all. He's writing to a group of people. See, we read through our individualistic lenses and personalize the scripture just too quickly. And when we do that, what we unfortunately miss out on is the beautiful realities of community that are meant to be unearthed in the text. Now, there's a phrase, I grew up with it, maybe you did too. It's kind of like just a Christian thing that was said, but it was this. If you were the only person on earth 
Christ would have still suffered and died for you. Now, that is an interesting thought experiment. And it's true because for God so loved the world. So if you made up the entirety of humanity, then yes, by definition, yes, he would have. But here's the, here's the problem with that phrase. Who does it put the focus on? The self it puts it on us. But you see, Jesus didn't die for a person. He died for a people. He didn't die just for you. He died for an us. He died on the cross, not to save a bunch of isolated individuals, but to bring us, redeem us, restore us into a forever family. He takes us away from isolation, away from individual living and into an us. So he does care about you specifically, uniquely you and me and brings us into an us. See, it's not that individuals are irrelevant. You and I are absolutely relevant into the story. The individual person matters because the person is part of a people. And he came to save for himself a people, a holy nation, a forever family that is filled with beautifully unique and diverse humans. Now, that quote, that Christian phrase is actually believed to be a misquote of Augustine who is quoted as saying it this way, God loves each of us as if there was only one of us. Now here's what that, the difference between those two. What this is talking about is our belovedness. Belovedness. That you and I are each uniquely loved. That we are uniquely and beautifully loved children. And that makes all the difference. See, best example I have is I love my family. In my family, there are at present, um, besides me, four other living creatures in my family. One of them is our dog. One is, is my wife and two of them are our kids, right? So in my family, I love my family. I love Allie, Asher, Abby, and Duffy. Now I don't love them all the same. That would be really bizarre, right? If I loved my dog the way I loved my kids, right? But you see, I love Allie in a uniquely alley way. That is in the context that she is my wife. I love Asher in a uniquely Asher way in the context that he's my son. I love Abby in a uniquely Abby way in the context that she's my daughter. And I love Duffy in a uniquely Duffy way. Um, man, that dog. Uh, but especially because he's my pet. I love each of them uniquely. And I love my family as a whole. That's the best I got for it. Because you see, God loves his historic global church that spans the globe and spans generations and includes this room tonight. His forever family. He loves us as a whole. We are united across the globe, even right now. And he loves each son and daughter within the family in a uniquely beautiful and personal way. God loves no one the same way he loves you. And he loves his family. So what is Jesus' desire? What is his prayer for y'all? Verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, God's desire is that we would be one united people. See, the centuries have shown division and brokenness within the church, for sure. Church splits, fractured friendships, denominational brokenness, all of those realities are realities. 
But here's what we can say unequivocally is true. Those things do not match Jesus's desires. Doesn't mean that denominations are bad, that, they're, that, it's, that it's not okay that there are different types of churches. It's totally okay. But it's not okay for us to backbite. It's not okay for us to beat up on one another. It's not okay for us to live in division and disunity. So why do we live like this? And why don't we live like what Jesus is describing here? He goes on verse 22 and 23, that the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. We'll get to the part about the watching world in, in a bit, but let's focus for a second on what Jesus is saying is foundational for us to understand for unity to become a reality. We have to experience the love of the Father. We have to experience the love of the Father. What he is saying here is that if we are unified, it is going to reveal to the watching world that we have experienced God's love and love him in return. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about a secure attachment with God, that our intimacy with God and only from true intimacy with the Father can we truly trust Him to listen to Him and to obey His voice. But now Jesus is connecting, experiencing God's love with our ability to live in unity and, and oneness with one another. Now, here's the reality. Humans aren't exactly safe, right? We hurt one another. We must understand one another. We think differently from one another. We have the best of intentions. We have the worst of intentions. Constantly. We're not exactly trustworthy, right? I mean, I'm not, are you? So how can we possibly be safe enough to truly engage in oneness and intimacy with one another the way that Jesus is describing here? Because we realize that we are a people who are so deeply loved by the Father. That our Father wants us to be so rooted in his affections toward us that we can rest in the shelter of his wings, not believing that that shelter means that we are never gonna get hurt by anyone else or the world around us. But that in the midst of the difficulty, we know that we have a safety net in the most unmovable reality and existence, our dad, who happens to be the creator of the cosmos. And in that, we are truly lacking in nothing. See, we are safe to seek unity and oneness with one another, not because we're always gonna get it right, but because we are connected with a good father who desires to draw us near to himself and remind us that therefore, we are now a safe people. See, we typically move towards independence or codependence. Independence is no one tells me what to do, how to live or who I am. Codependence is a complete reliance on someone else for all those things and more. But what we discover in the scriptures is that as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, we are meant to live interdependent. Interdependence. Interdependence is a bond that is made up of persons who live as a healthy and whole people. In other words, we know who we are and we know who we are in the midst of who we are together. Both and See, this is the version of relational health that is consistently advocated for in the scriptures. Whether it's the picture that we get of a healthy marriage relationship, 
friendship, community relationship, even in the most difficult of realities, this is what we discovered. I mean, just look for a second in Galatians 6, verse 1. The way that the Apostle Paul writes about what we do when we see one another falling into sinful patterns. Galatians 6, verse 1. Perfect. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one test his own work. And then his reason to boast will be in himself alone and not in his neighbor. For each will have to bear his own load. So Paul is talking about the fact that there is a communal responsibility. Restore one another. Bear one another's burdens. Communal. But there's also a personal responsibility. Test your own work. Bear your own load. It's not an either or, it's a, it's a both and reality. And this is what interconnectedness looks like. Interdependence flies in the face of cultural norms and even what we're usually comfortable with. Like you don't get to say anything. No, that me, like my bubble, you don't get to come in here. But according to both Harvard and the scriptures, it's not really working. You see, Jesus offers a better way to see us as a united holistic whole, which means we impact one another way more than we know. Like in this passage where Paul is talking about the fact that our sin affects one another. This is what Paul's writing about. This is why we bear one another's burdens. We don't fight sinful patterns alone. We engage deeply with one another. We go deep because I need you to remind me of my desperate need of Jesus. And you need it from me, you need it from one another. We like to think that our sinful patterns only affect us, but the reality is we affect one another all the time. I mean, throughout the Bible, we see a consistency that the sinful patterns are so quick to become contagious within a community because our hearts are kind of looking for somebody to go, yeah, that looks right. We want confirmation on choosing our own way. So whether it's a sin of action, inaction, word or thought, it has a real effect on us as a community because we are one. So each of our sinful patterns carries a real effect on one another. And it's not like a threat. It's just the reality of what it looks like if we are one united body. That what happens to the finger affects the rest of the body. Our successes also affect one another. If you ever want to stab jealousy in the face, celebrate those with those who are celebrating. This is how when someone gets a raise, an awesome new job, a marriage proposal, or whatever the cause for celebration is, we have the ability to join in with them in the celebration because we are one. So your successes become my successes. We celebrate together. But what couples along with that is our grief affects one another as well. We are one. This is why Jesus could say, grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn because we are interconnected. If we are one, then it should affect all of us. It's not so much just a command that Jesus is giving. He's kind of like almost restating the obvious. If you are one united body, then you will obviously grieve with those who grieve and mourn with those who mourn 
Because if you are one, it's gonna affect you. So your empathy should trigger. Like you should be able to sit with them in the difficult because we're one. So your grief becomes my grief and my grief becomes your grief. See, we are meant to live interdependent and interconnected lives. Now towards the end of the prayer, Jesus reminds us though, that this is not about us figuring it out. Okay, got it. I need to be unified. We need to be unified. Let me get all the right steps towards unity and let's do it. But Jesus tells us where it all starts. It's not in our own striving for unity, but it's uniting at his feet. Verse 26, he goes, I made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. See, in the scriptures, whenever we read about God's name being revealed, that is always a signpost to remind us that what's happening there is that somebody has been drawn into intimacy with God. And that's what Jesus is getting at. That these are people who have experienced the delight of intimacy with you. And in doing so, they can have this oneness with one another. Because we can only be truly united if we are being united at the feet of Jesus. See, we are surrounded, even in this space right now, by other imperfect humans. And if, and if you're here and you are holding out for the perfect church to truly be vulnerable and truly be united to, then you're going to be holding out until Jesus returns. But if you realize that our source of unity with one another is rooted in our intimacy with God, then everything changes. We unite because we each approach the feet of Jesus. And while there, we look to our left and to our right and in front of us and behind us, and we see one another there. It's not unity because we strove for it. It's unity because we're with Jesus. Now that Harvard research study offers a really interesting insight. They said, this is one of their solutions, like how to fix the problem. We need to return to an idea that was central to our founding and is at the heart of many great religious traditions, that we have commitments to ourselves, but we also have vital commitments to each other, including to those who are vulnerable. Now, absolutely true. But Jesus offers the better version of that reality. See, the best the world and the culture can offer is like surface level. But when we belong to the forever family of God, it changes the truest things about you. It changes the truest things about us. It offers a more compelling vision of truly belonging to a family where you are known, safe, cared for, and seen. But not only are you those things, but you are able to do those things for one another. That we can move out of the space of, but what's in it in this community for me? And moving into the space of how do I care for the person next to me? I mean, just imagine, imagine if that's the way all of us lived all of our days. If all of us were constantly looking out for the benefit of others. I know it's crazy, it's biblical. Uh, if all of us were doing that, we're always looking out for the benefit of others. Do you think that, our, that we'd be taken care of too? Yeah, it kind of makes sense that we would be. That's what life in community is supposed to look like. The body taking care of itself. And we do that because our head is Jesus himself. 
Now the world is watching. They, they want to see how we live and how we love one another. Jesus explained that, that the world will know that you're my disciples by your love for one another. They're looking at our family, seeing how dysfunctional are they? How, do they have a living hope that is better than whatever the world has to offer? This is why Jesus says that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. See, our oneness and our unity is literally living proof of the risen Savior, Jesus. Only with the risen Savior and with an indwelling spirit do we have any ability to live in unity with one another. So imagine if this became more and more of our reality, your reality and mine. So tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to enter into a spiritual rhythm together. And this is going to be a practical response for us to live in unity. See, we are told over and over again in the scriptures to pray with one another. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. So what we want to do is invite each of us and we're going to take 10 minutes and we're going to pray for one another by breaking up into groups of three. Not about anything in particular, but whatever is on your heart and on your mind. I know you're already feeling uncomfortable by this. I know, me too. Let's do this together, okay? See, if you're here tonight and you either don't feel comfortable praying with others or you still don't know what you think about Jesus in the first place, it feels zero awkwardness to do either one of these two options. Go into a group and say something that you need prayer for and you don't have to pray. It's totally okay. Other option is simply listen and observe. Feel no awkwardness to do that. It's totally okay too. But in this, what I would hope is that, that you would discover that this is a moment for us to discover the wonder of Jesus as we seek to be one together. So what we're going to do right now is turn around in front, to the left, to the right, and spend a moment praying with one another, remembering that Jesus' prayer is that we would be unified. So let's go ahead and pray for 10 minutes.
Would you pray with me? Father, Father, what an incredible noise it is to be in a room with brothers and sisters who are leading in one another closer to you in prayer, that we are interceding on one another's behalf, that we are bringing whatever's going on in our hearts and our minds to one another. Lord, I can't imagine how beautiful that noise is to you. So Lord, I pray right now for this community, for the church of Orlando, for all the churches that reach Disney cast members, for the church around this nation and the globe, that you would help us to be one as you and your son are one. Help us to have that unity present in our lives. Lord, I don't know what that means. I don't know what that looks like specifically. But let it start with us uniting at your feet as we pray for one another. Let us, as we go through the week ahead, take time to go to you on behalf of our friends, our family, our community. To know that when we approach you, we are approaching a really good dad who wants to hear from his kids. I thank you for this community that we are a part of. Thank you for each and every one who's here tonight. Draw us near to you. Help us to be one as you are one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.